Father, we do thank you for this time together. I thank you for this group, the gift that they are to this church, and their hearts for service, their hearts for meeting the needs of people and for sharing the gospel where they can. I pray that you continue to grow us up in grace, that you would, uh, by your Spirit, form in us the image of Christ. Continue to do that work that only you can do in our hearts so that we would reflect you rightly in our love for one another and our love for those you are redeeming to yourself. I pray that as we go through this next section in Acts, we, we see the Holy Spirit working um, in the church in the first century and how you've continued to work in the church to make yourself known and to display your grace and your mercy to a people who deserve none of it. And we are th- so thankful for what you've done for us in Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. We're in Acts 13. <clears throat> Continuing that chapter, last time, uh, last time we got to deal with this bizarre character, Bar-Jesus. The magician, yes. And, and remember, he was struck blind because he made crooked the straight paths of the Lord. We talked to what, what was going on there. Um, and we also saw that right out of the gate, this first missionary journey with Paul... He had an audience with the proconsul, kind of the governor uh, of the island of Cyprus. And so they're having immediate impact uh, high up. The remainder of chapter 13 is set mostly in what's known as Pisidian Antioch. It, it's a little weird. We have another Antioch. And in fact, in the ancient world, we had 16 Antiochs. And the reason was... Well, what do you think the reason might be? Antioch means Paris, Texas. It's like Paris, Texas. There's Parises all over the place. Um, what, what is it? Antioch means 16. <laughs> no, Antioch does not mean 16. <laughs> <laughs> there was, uh, if you remember, Alexander the Great conquered the known world. He wept because there were no more worlds to conquer, and then he died. And in his death, because that's all he lived for is conquering, uh, once he was done, he gave his empire to four generals, and one of them was, uh, we, we get several different empires, one of them Seleucid Empire. And the guy, uh, what's his name, Seleucus Nicator, I think is I've got it written down here, I can't remember all this stuff. Anyway, he went around, he loved his dad, and every place he went in the empire, he established 16 city, cities named after his dad, Antiochus, Antiochus. I don't know. I'm not, my, my, my Greek is horrible. Um, but anyway, so he named 16 cities. And so they became known as, you know, like this one's Pisidian Antioch because it was in that region, in that area. And this town that they're going to, that we're going to read about today, was actually in the province of Galatia. So, Letter to the Galatians is written to this area. Okay? So, um, you have um, Seleucus Nicator. That's his name. All right. Just so you know, near next party. Um, Luke, we're going to see as we read through this, this first part of it, is real short on the description of what's going on here. Remember, they're in Cyprus. They're going to sail into the coast of Turkey. And then he says, and then they went from Pergus to, you know, uh, and, uh, Pisidian and Antioch. That's not a small journey. That's 100 miles through a mountain through mountainous ranges. I mean, this is a, a huge journey. Um, and not only is the terrain bad, but it's known to have bandits. 
And these bandits weren't like, you know, Johnny Depp. These bandits were like wicked people. Well, I mean, he's wicked, but, but, but you know what I mean. They're like dangerous people. So, um, so you have this, this dangerous journey, this difficult thing going on, 100 miles to the north through this mountainous territory. And uh, let's read quickly what happens. Uh, chapter 13, starting in, in verse 13. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. And after reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hands said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. We'll stop there for now. So he gives this brief statement. Yeah, they go from Perga to Antioch. Big journey. Um, it's before this trip that John Mark, who's traveling with him, remember John Mark is the son of the woman that Peter went to her house whenever he got out of prison, the angel uh, let him out of prison. He went to her, her house, the, the mother of Mark, it says, the mother of John Mark. Well, John Mark is the cousin of Barnabas, right? They're on this journey, and he's kind of the historian, uh, eyewitness kind of guy of the, of the passion of what happened there. And they use him to possibly do baptisms and maybe uh, catechize some of the people that are converted in their places. Well, before they make this long trip through the mountains to Antioch, he taps out. I'm not going. And Luke doesn't tell us why. We have no idea why he does it. But we know it's a big deal because later on, Paul and Barnabas, Luke says, have no small dispute over this. Now, I mean, again, he has a knack for understatement. Uh, sometimes Tammy and I have no small disputes. Uh, but this was such a major dispute that Luke and, and, and Barnabas, uh, Luke and Barnabas, Paul and Barnabas split ways. But we don't know what it is. And people have speculated why Mark left. Uh, some have said it was because um, maybe he disagreed with Paul's law-free gospel to the Gentiles. He just he was more of a more of a, 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 a Jewish diehard there. Um, maybe he was upset that Paul was taking on more of a leadership role over his cousin Barnabas. He felt some family pride being being bruised there. I mean, youthful rebellion. I mean, there are all kinds of ideas. I think he tapped out because he's looking at those mountains, going, "I'm not going through that." I, that's my personal view. I just think it was the trip. Some have said he might have gotten malaria in the lowlands, but I mean, we, we just don't know. But we do know it had a big effect later on uh, on, on the relationship between Paul and Barnabas. So as they do get to Antioch, eventually, I guess it's however long it takes to travel by, by foot through mountains, 100 miles, maybe months. Uh, what do they do when they first get there? What does it say? <coughs> They go to the synagogue. Why are they doing that? We've talked about this before. It does, doesn't it? It's kind of their pattern to go to the synagogues first. Why would, what, we talked about some reasons for that. What, what were some reasons for why he would go to the synagogue first? That's where the God-fearers would be. Right. Where they would be 
if you're moving toward Gentiles, he, it, it's easier to kind of go in where you have God-fearing Gentiles. There's a connection point there. They're already fearing the God of Israel. They're actually maybe converts to Judaism, but still kind of have that barrier because they're not um, ethnic Jews. It's, a synagogue would be the cultural center for the Jewish people in each town. Uh, there would, they would have their religious services there. They'd have their education there. They'd have their judgments there, their, their own courts, their own system of, of rule there. They'd have all their civic stuff. All the weddings are there, you know, little building use fee or whatever. Um, you have all of those things there. And Paul's a Jew, so it's natural to go to the place where you have the connection, language, culture, all of those things. And you have this Gentile connection which we see in this passage, or, or in this chapter later on, we'll see uh, next week when we get to the response. Uh, th it has a major effect. The Jews will reject, but the Gentiles will convert. And that's the pattern you see throughout um, the New Testament with Paul. So it was his custom to go to the synagogue first if there was one. Some places there wasn't, and he didn't go to a, to a synagogue. Um, how is he getting this invitation to speak? I mean, what's going on there? I think it was an invitation. You don't think it was an invitation? He just went up there and spoke. Well, he said, it says that the rulers sent him a message. Who are the rulers of the synagogue? Good question. Usually there was one elder of the synagogue that kind of handled the administrative part of it, but the rulers, plural, would be guys who had served in that position before who were still kind of looked on as in a leadership role. A lot of times, part of their synagogue services, you got prayer, you've got some kind of benediction thing that, uh, uh, that, that, that they do part of their uh, liturgy. Then you have a reading of the Law and the Prophets, reading the Scriptures, and then you'd have um, a homily that was given. And a homily would be something, not like what we do here for you know, an hour, but what, it would be like a 20-minute thing. Right? Be 20, 15, 20, maybe pushing it. If they're reformed, it's probably 30. Um, so you have these short things about the passage that you were reading at the, at the time, right? And so you had to find somebody worthy to do that who's going to do a good job, who's, who's, a, who's an accredited person. They got Paul. People, you know, maybe he introduced himself, they're talking to him, hey, this sounds like an intelligent guy, he knows the scripture, let's get him to do a homily. So some of the smart guys think that maybe there was an invitation ahead of time for the Sabbath through message, it indicates that there was a message sent to them. And they kind of planned ahead, like people who get prepared for service do, and they planned ahead and they, and they invited Paul to speak. Would they have known he was a Christian? I, I mean, would that... Would they have just known of his, his reputation as a Jewish teacher and that's why he got invited? Or would they have known he I, was a follower of Christ? I don't know at this point. I mean, at, at this point, Christianity was still considered to be kind of a subset of Judaism. I mean, it hadn't really fully been promoted to a Gentile separate religion kind of thing. So, hey, he's got some interesting ideas. Maybe it would be encouraging to our people to hear some of this stuff going on. Maybe that's what was going on. We just don't, I don't know. Um, Luke doesn't give us, again, uh, a whole lot of detail here. But he was a suitable person who could deliver the, ho the homily in their minds. And they invited him to do it. 
There were several styles in which these things were done. And one of the most uh, favored styles was where they would um, combine or link uh, the law and the prophets in the homily. It wasn't just about the law, it wasn't just about the prophets, it, but you, if you can find some way to kind of link the two. Um, and so, uh, they get that in Paul. So let's look at verse 16. Men of Israel, and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. Now that's in numbers. That verse, that would be like three years for us. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and, Saul, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No, but behold, after me, one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. All right, we'll stop there for a second. What strikes you about Paul? Uh, about how Paul begins this speech in verse 16 through 25. What strikes you about that? He goes way back. He goes way back. But he starts in slavery <clears throat> in Egypt. Okay, he starts, he starts calling our fathers, and then in Egypt, we're enslaved, and then he goes through judges, he goes through the wilderness, he goes through David. He finds common ground. He finds common ground. They believe all of that based. I mean, they read about it every Sabbath, right? Establishes a lot of his credibility. Establishes a lot of his credibility. This guy knows our history. Okay. So the way he introduces, like, just the first sentence: "Men of Israel, and you who fear God." Aha. We've got the Jews and the Gentiles. And the Gentiles. So he's addressing two audiences. Primarily, who do you think this address is to? The Jews. The Jews. To the Jews. He's talking about their history. <clears throat> What is it about his retelling of their history that is common? That is, um, what's the connecting point with all of these statements? Because really what these are, it's kind of boring. I mean, isn't this a weird way to do it? Just to kind of go through bullet points of historical data? But it leads up to something. It leads up to something. But what is he doing in the retelling of the history? Just the data points. How is he characterizing it? What is he saying? It was God did this, or God brought this out from the people, or gave this to the people. God did this. God brought them out. Um, his main emphasis here. Let's let's listen to the language here. I've got some bullet points. Let me read through these. God chose our fathers. God made the people great. God led them out of it. God put up with them for forty years in the wilderness. 
God destroyed seven nations and gave them their land. God gave them judges. God gave them a king when they asked. God removed a bad king. God raised up David, a man after my heart. God has brought to Israel a savior. And then he says, just as he promised. This is personal. It's not out there. God is personal. He promised. But what's he doing here? What's he conveying? Is he conveying Israel? Or is he conveying God? What is he saying about God here? He's faithful. He's faithful. What else? He's in control. He's in control. What else? He's sovereign, he's faithful, and he is merciful. merciful. Now, what's the greatest expression of faithfulness, sovereignty, and mercy? Jesus, and that's exactly where he's going. Yes, that's the right answer in Sunday school. And that's exactly where he's going, right? He's laying the groundwork through their own history of what he has done for his people in Christ. He's always been this way. This is the nature of God. This is reality. God's mercy and faithfulness in the grind of history. The Christian worldview recognizes and celebrates that God is at the center of history. He's the main event in history. He's the explanation for everything, the meaning for everything. And just pause here for a second and recognize if, if we don't get to the why of a historical fact, if we don't get to the meaning why something is going on, we stay on the surface. We are superficial and naive in reality. We're not perceiving everything. And what Paul is doing here, he's showing a deeper world view. It's not just data points. There's a meaning behind this. And in our culture today, we stay on the crust, on the top. We're just up here. Somebody said this. Somebody did this. This thing is happening over here. It's all up here. Why? Why is that going on? What's driving that? Scripture again and again calls us to grab our shovels and dig below the surface of things. And the reason that this stuff is going on, what is God doing, should be the question we, we should be asking. What is, what is, how does this fit into redemptive history? What do I need to be doing to be a part of what's going on that's deeper than the news report? that's deeper than, you know, the math lesson. What's going on? John Piper makes a point of even teaching spelling uh, displays and has meaning in the purpose of God, who He is and what He's done. Even teaching spelling. Why? Spelling is a way that we communicate not, and not throw up obstacles to how we, how, we, uh, how we talk to people. And communication reflects the image of God, the nature of God. Paul is pointing to that. Everything happens because of what God has done. And look at what He's done in Christ. That's where he's going with this. All right. To miss Him is to embrace superficiality and to deny what is real. Everything is about Him. And then you have this great recitation of Israel's history and God doing this and God being merciful and God being faithful and God being sovereign and then John the Baptist? Why is he there? That seems disjointed, doesn't it? Why is John the Baptist suddenly brought out? God sent a messenger. God sent a messenger. And who was John the Baptist? What did Jesus say about him? 
foreteller, precursor to Christ. Okay, he's he's a precursor to Christ. He's a messenger proclaiming the day of the Lord. Kind of, I mean, this is some of the some of the language that's used. Was he not referred to as Elijah? He is in the spirit of Elijah. A lot of a lot of uh, a lot of language like that in the Gospels, uh, talking about John the Baptist. He's the one who cries out in the wilderness. Um, it also shows how. John was preaching to people of Israel, and they kind of missed it. Yeah, they did. He, he is considered to be the last of the great Old Testament prophets. Uh, of all the men born of women, there's none greater than John, Jesus said. The fulfillment, the kind of the culmination of a lot of that Old Testament proclamation pointing to Jesus, he's the last one. He's here as a transition figure, again, which is who he was, between the Old Testament people of God and the new community that God is building in Christ. He's the transition guy. And Paul uses him as that here. Why would he bring out John to these people all the way up in Turkey? <coughs> had, had they heard of John the Baptist up in Turkey? Well, actually they had. We'll see in chapter 15, 16, somewhere around there. There's a group of people, even west, further west. Um, wait. Yeah, West, who, who had heard of John, were considered to be disciples. We've only been baptized by the baptism of John, they said. And then they share with them Christ, and they become saved, and they, and they, and they, con and, and they convert right then. And, and, but they're even further than these guys here at Antioch. So our thought is, the smart guy's thought, it's not my original thought, but the thought is that John, the, the, the stories of John went from Judea all the way to all the synagogues. Who is this guy? What's going on? Um, and, and Paul is talking about him in the same way that, uh, that he'll talk about him later to the guys in Ephesus. It's, he was foretelling. He's telling who Jesus is. He's a transition figure. He's not the end game. All right. Let's look at... Uh, Let's look at verse 26. In John, we see a, a bold witness to the coming of Jesus, but Paul points to two other messengers of this salvation. Look at verse 26. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God. Notice the combination there. He's, he realizes the two audiences he's talking to. To us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb, but God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second psalm, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore he says also in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. For David 
after he had served the purposes of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. We'll stop there. Who are the two witnesses? If you're going to hazard a guess, who are the other two witnesses that Paul points to? He points to John. Who else does he point to? Or what else does he point to? <clears throat> he points to the fact that Israel killed Christ, which is a fulfillment of what he what was said about it. Okay, that's a that's a fact. Who's proclaiming this? Who are the witnesses to these facts? Those to whom he appeared after. Those to whom he appeared. Okay, that would include probably most importantly who? The apostles. The apostles, right? The twelve. You will be my witnesses, he said to them. What's the other witness? That's a data point. Yes, in what way? Um, you know, like Pentecost, you know, when the Holy Spirit came down. Okay. That's, a, again, a data point. In what way? The Scriptures. The scriptures yeah. In the Psalms, and Isaiah is quoted in there, and Samuel's quoted in there. Um, well, not quoted, but it's, it's hinted at through the passage in Isaiah. You have the Scriptures bear witness. And what's significant about that? The apostles, these guys in Judea, yeah, they may be good guys, and, they're, and, and eventually what they're proclaiming will be also Scripture. So uh, we won't get all Catholic on that. But, but what is it about the Scriptures here that's significant to them? What Scripture is he talking about? The Old Testament he's talking about. And what's significant to a Jewish synagogue about the Old Testament? It's the Word of God, and what's done with it? It's read every Sabbath, right? It's read every Sabbath. What does he say about the leaders in Jerusalem? They didn't know, and they should have, right? They heard it every Sabbath. What's the implication? You hear it every Sabbath. And you're hearing it now. And you're hearing it in the context of God being faithful and merciful and sovereign. And here it is. Here's the witness to you Jews out here in Turkey. God hasn't forgotten you out here in Turkey. The witness to the Scripture has been there. I'm bringing you the witness the apostles have given us. It's ironic, isn't it? They should have known in Jerusalem. I mean, those are, the, those are the big dogs. I mean, they're right there close to the temple. They're right there, you know. The law is sitting in... Well, no, it's not sitting in the ark anymore at that time, is it? Well, there was at one time an ark sitting in the temple. They're close to... That's the hub of Jewish culture and knowledge is Jerusalem, and they missed it. The, that's the ironic thing. And in missing it, they still fulfilled it. What they did in ignorance, they did to fulfill the promises of God. Paul specifically states that they removed him from the tree and laid him in a tomb. What's, what's that, what does that imply? What does that say without saying it? He was what? Hung, Hung on a tree. They laid him in a tomb. What does that, what does that mean it happened? 
He died, right? You don't put somebody in a tomb. He's mostly dead. You don't do that. <laughs> he put him in the tomb because he's dead. And yet you have a problem. The contrast that he then goes to, uh, you will not let your Holy One see what? Corruption. Corruption. What does that mean? Bodily decay that comes from death, right? Was that David? Did he see corruption? Yes, he said he did later. He, he was rotten in his grave, right? His body has seen corruption. But what's the contrast? Jesus ain't rotten in the grave. He was raised up. And notice that amazing double use of that word raised up. Anytime else we've seen raised up, it's usually God raises up Moses, the deliverer of the people. God raises up, you know, Samson to make really cool riddles with lions and kill a bunch of Philistines. God raises up judges. He raises up David as a deliverer of the people, as a, as a man after his own heart. Here he says, God raises up Christ. Well, yes, he raised him up, but he really raised him up, right? There's the double use of that word, raised up. Not only is he a servant of God being used to deliver his people, but he is raised up from the dead to deliver us from the greatest enemy we have, sin and death. And how does he do? What scriptures does he turn to? He turns to scriptures that they read every Sabbath in their synagogues, and he quotes three Old Testament texts that, that we identify here that, that establish that Jesus is the one who fulfills the promise. He, he quotes first Psalm 2-7, which says, I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. What does today refer to, by the way? Today I have begotten you. A little Christological issue there. You are my son. Today I have, I have forgotten. I have begotten you. What does that mean? Did Jesus become the Son at the Incarnation? Did He become the Son at the Resurrection? No. Uh, we, are, we are not, uh, we are not um, of, of, the, of the ilk of Arius. Christ was not created to be the Son. He's the Eternal Son. But what does that mean then? What is, what is Paul referring to there? Looking for a good seminary answer. <laughs> I'm putting him on the spot. He's going, why are you doing this to me? The Trinity. The Trinity, yes. He's eternal son. But when did, what is this today referring to? How is Paul using it here? What is it about? Okay. The resurrection happens. Say. Your notes say. Go ahead. We'll, we'll, we'll default to the study Bible notes. What does it say? It says, today in raising you from the dead, I'm declaring that you're my son and that I'm your father. It was a, a confirmation. It's a confirmation to whom? God knew it already. To those who were witnesses. To the unbelieving Jews? To the, and ultimately to the believing Gentiles as well, right? He, the resurrection proclaims what the Father has always testified. This is my son. And, and testified to throughout the life of Christ. This is my son, whom I'm well pleased. And yet the resurrection declares that Paul says in, in Romans 1.4 that he declared him to be his son with power. 
it's a huge, explosive demonstration of the seated of Christ, the risen Christ, the Son of God, seated on a throne. Why is that important to bring out here to these to these Jews and God-fearing Gentiles? Why is that important? Because that's the Jesus they expected. That's the Messiah. They expected. Yeah, and this is again the good point. This this psalm is understood at that time even to be a messianic psalm. This is somebody that is, this is a big deal in the history of Israel. This is a culmination of God's faithfulness, His mercy, and His sovereignty by raising up this descendant of David. This is a huge deal. And yet, He's declared Him to be a son. Jesus is the eternal Son of God. He was recognized as such throughout His earthly life, but it's, in the, it's through the resurrection that He was exalted to God's right hand for all to see Him enthroned and to be recognized as such by believing human beings. Then he goes to this passage, this little section in Isaiah 55.3. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. What's he referring to there? The everlasting covenant. covenant. To whom? To to David, the, the seed of David, the descendants of David. What did he say? 2 Samuel 7. Uh, records Nathan telling David a couple of now I won't read the whole passage because it's 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 long but he says to him in verse 12 of second Samuel 7 when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers what does that mean dead. you're dead right I will raise up there's that word again I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom and then in verse 13 it says He shall build a house for my name. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And then in verse 16, And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Through this descendant, you have an eternal kingdom, an eternal throne. Uh, And a son, it says also in there, I will call him, you be like a son to me uh, uh, on the throne. In that sonship, you have a king who is building a house for God. Now, the immediate fulfillment of that was Solomon with the temple. He built a house, but Solomon died. His throne was not forever. He was kind of a goofball at the end of his life. Not established forever. But the type of that was Solomon. The fulfillment of that is Christ. And Christ built a really awesome temple in Jerusalem. No? What's the house? The church. The temple of God that He is building for His Father just as He promised. Just as was promised to Him. So Paul cites Isaiah 53.3 to bring this promise uh, of David into the mix. But God's promise was not fulfilled in David. In fact, in verse 12, we said, When your days are fulfilled and you lie with your fathers, that's not eternal. David was not eternal, so he couldn't fulfill it. Where have we heard this argument before, by the way? Do you remember a certain fisherman saying this to the Jews in Jerusalem? I mean, he brought out the same point. David's rotting. He, he, why would he say this? You will not let your Holy One see corruption. He's rotting. You will not abandon my soul in Sheol. Psalm 16.10 is where he's pulling this from. Or let your Holy One see corruption. Again, Paul is telling the Jews what Peter told the Jews. This can't be David talking about himself. 
He's dead and rotting in the ground. And this is the double meaning that Paul uses, raised up. Um, all right. Christ is raised up as the eternal heir of David from the dead. He's the one who received the promises to David. His throne is forever, and the apostles and the scriptures are a witness to the resurrection as a fulfillment of those promises. So look at verse 38. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, and this is where the organ starts playing. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, and be astounded and perish. For I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. What's he saying? Here's the carrot. Here's the stick. Right? This is being offered to you. The message of God's mercy, faithfulness, sovereignty, culminating in Christ is being offered to you for the forgiveness of sins. For what? You couldn't be freed under the law. And the other word that's, that's used sometimes there in that, in that for free there is justified. And if we're Baptists, that's just as if I'd never done it. That talking about account, uh, accessibility, acceptance before God. What you couldn't make, be made acceptable before God in the law, Christ has made you acceptable before God if you trust Him, if you believe in Him. But if you don't, you scoffer, what's the, what's the stick? It's a judgment passage. It's a judgment statement from the prophets. So he's combining law and prophets. You see how this is working? It's the ideal homily. He has both. Beware lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Why is it significant? Look at verse, um, and look at verse uh, uh, 39. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Now that's significant to a Jew. Because you always have the sacrificial system going on, and we're out here in, you know, way away from Jerusalem. We can't get to the temple for, for our sacrifices. That's significant for them. But do you see how that also would be significant for a Gentile who's a God-fearer? Yeah. Under the law of Moses, I remain apart, separated. And yet I can be justified apart from the law of Moses? So here's the interesting thing. Paul is preaching this to Jews, primarily. Jew first. But who's hearing it? You mean I'm, I don't have to go through the ceremonial rites that are involved in being a Jew? Sign me up. Right? This is a, this is a huge burden lifted from the Gentile community that's within the synagogues. So the Gentiles, we'll see next week, are all about this. They want to hear more of this. They're interested in this. What about the Jewish leaders? What do you think their response is going to be? I, I know. I'm done. We lose our distinctiveness here. We lose our importance here. We lose our ability to keep 
who would these people who would normally be our our overlords from a governmental standpoint under our thumb in our synagogues because we're you know ethnic Jews and not and and, and they aren't. So you'll see the Jews reject, but the Gentiles receive. And we'll see that next week. Any uh, any um, questions or comments on that? It is it is about seven minutes after ten. What, what do, any comments or questions? Everybody says no. Maybe no. Okay. All right. Let's pray. God is a room full of Gentiles. We are so thankful that you have given us Jesus. That in Him, you have broken down the dividing wall of hostility that remained between us because we were not your people. We who were without hope in the world and apart from God have been reconciled in the body of His flesh through the cross. God, would you make us ever mindful of that, ever rejoicing of that. And that in doing that to us individually, we would be transformed to see others in whom you have done that as being also vessels of your mercy. Imperfect like we are, cruddy on the outside like we are, but still recipients of your grace. Would you make us, uh, would you give us a vision, a, a eyesight? Heal our, our, our eyes and our minds and our hearts and how we see each other that even though we may be imperfect, that that great faithfulness, that great mercy in your sovereignty, what you've done for us, you've done to others, and we should love each other as you love each of us. Would you make our hearts receptive for, um, for your work in this body? Would you keep us moving forward into the image of Jesus, our God and our King? who sits enthroned on high, fully God, fully man. It's in His name we pray. Amen.